There are business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're elevating their businesses, teams, and themselves to add more value. And so can you. Welcome to the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. If you are looking for ways to elevate success while contributing to a better world, you'll want to listen for the next hour. Now here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper and welcome to another Business Elevation Show on Voice America. And I'm so excited about today's show. I really, uh, truly am. We've got um, the author of To Make Riders Faster, Anna DePico, on the show um, with uh, Phil Wright, White, the co-founder of Cervelo uh, Cycles. And this is an absolutely incredible story of disrupting the cycle industry and, and almost losing it all. So if you're into cycling, you're into entrepreneurship, you're into, into business, um, you're into um, innovation, then I think you're going to find something in the show today that will absolutely fascinate you. Um, just before I say a little bit more about this and a little bit more about the book and and introduce you to Phil and to Anna, I want to say a big thank you to my guest last week, uh, Rupert Honeywood of the Business um, Bureau um, he was a, a fantastic um, guest last week. Um, he talks about how to uh, create hot leads from using LinkedIn. Um, they're an incredible um, organization, actually, and are really leading the edge on really engaging through uh, communication via LinkedIn and, and taking that towards um, uh, towards uh, sales. So if you're interested, do go back to the um, archive and take a look at that. And there's this process that you can follow yourself uh, if you don't want to use another party to be able to market yourself very effectively through LinkedIn. So I would check that out if I were you. So I would say I get sent a lot of books through the post with doing this show. And it's only very occasionally that I receive a book that, A, I simply can't put down, but also, B, that I really just admire the beauty of it and, and would want to leave it on my coffee table so people can have a look at it. And um, I received to make um, Riders Faster, um, which was written by um, Anna DePico, the wife of my guest today, Phil White, uh, who's the co-founder of an incredible um, cycle company, Cervelo, uh, who um, absolutely uh, just disrupted uh, the uh, marketplace for uh, cycles. I'm a keen cyclist, so I'd, I'd heard of them and some of their successes in the cycle market. And after reading this book, I just wish uh, last year I'd actually gone and bought one of their bikes when I realized how much better they are than their competition. <laughs> uh, Phil White and Gerard Vrooman um, took their bike companies, uh, Sabella, on a 16-year roller coaster ride from um, literally a basement workshop in Montreal to the absolute pinnacle of triathlon and road cycling. Uh, they realized their dream of seeing their bikes win the Tour de France, the Olympics, um, Ironman, and uh, Gerard and Phil built the most sought-after brand in the cycling world in less than a decade. Uh, Phil and also Gerard then faced the fight of their lives to keep the company alive. And also Anna, who was very much um, was Phil's wife, but was very much involved in the business uh, in that period um, as well. And it must have been very challenging supporting um, a husband as well and the business through uh, the journey that they went through. But after the sale of Cervelo to um, Pon Holdings in 2012, Phil stayed with Pon as a non-executive chairman of Cervelo and as a board member and the chief innovation officer of Pon Bike. And in July 2017, he left his position at Pon and Cervelo to pursue other adventures in innovation, mobility and performance. He's a sought after speaker and uh, the sort of person who is helping all sorts of companies with innovation around the world. Um, so uh, delighted to uh, welcome today uh, both uh, Phil and Anna. Uh, a big welcome to the show today. 
Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Um, what, um, what made you decide to, um, to write this book in the first place? Yeah, so thanks for asking. It was a little bit of a crazy idea. <laughs> it all starts like that, I think. So Phil and I were on a cycling trip in France, and um, we were with about 70 other fellow cyclists. And uh, when they found out that Phil was one of the co-founders of Cervelo and I was also involved with the company, they uh, couldn't stop asking questions about the bikes, the company, uh, what it was like to start a business, to grow a business. And um, I thought, gee, you know, wow, if I think that we had a crazy wild ride with Cervelo and these people can't stop asking questions, maybe there's a book in it. And I, the more I thought about it, the more I was compelled to do it. And I asked Phil what he thought, and he thought it was a great idea and supported the effort. And I asked Gerard, and he thought it was a good idea and supported the effort. And there began my journey. Well, well done. I'm, I'm really impressed because your first book, isn't it? And they're not it is. right, are they? <laughs> <laughs> they're quite, quite, quite a challenge. I wondered, I wonder, sort of, you know, did the with with phil and uh, and your the experiences of kind of innovation did you you know bring some it seems to me you brought some innovative ideas to the book because actually the aesthetic of it is really impressive as well was that one of your intentions yes well when when i put the book together i wanted it to to represent the cervello brand so i wanted the book to be um design f- uh, forward and and aesthetically interesting So um, I met a very interesting graphic artist who was experienced in graphic layout, and I talked to him about my ideas of of how I saw the book, and um, he made it a reality. So I've got got to ask this question, you know, how how did you meet Phil, and did you expect that you were going to go on such a journey after you settled down together? That was a bit of a surprise, I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so Phil and I were already together um, before he met Gerard at uh, McGill University, and um, when I uh, my expectation was when he finished university was that he was going to return to the you know corporate world um, in in an engineering capacity somewhere doing some cool stuff, but having a salary. And it was very, uh, very challenging while he was in school. We, I stayed back in, in Ottawa because I was working full time then. And Phil was uh, living in Montreal at McGill University. So it was, it was challenging economically because we had to s- sustain two different um, uh, living locations while he didn't have a salary at school. So I was really looking forward to... Um, uh, to a little more stability, <laughs> and after school, he he called me and he said, uh, "Hey, Anna, you know that bike project Jordan and I were working on?" And I thought, "Oh, here it comes." And he said, uh, "Yeah, we're going to start a business. What do you think?" And uh, of course, it was very exciting, and uh, I was fully on side with the opportunity. But uh, it kind of uh, threw my world upside down for a little bit. <laughs> I guess it reading the book as well. I think um, I could say, see you also thinking about you know how many businesses start up and fail, and uh, it's it's not always a success. It takes something special to to create a, a great business, and uh, certainly the speed that uh, you did. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, I was working as a commercial lender at the time, so I was fully aware of uh, of the challenges and uh, and the financial challenge. Um, and of course, fifty uh, percent of businesses fail. Uh, so I knew the stats, but um, I also believed in Phil and Jard and what they were doing. Um, and you know, there's there's a lot to be said uh, about the the people that um, that start the organization and and the product. That's that's um, uh, you know a big contributor to the success of any business. Yeah, well, well thank you, thank you for for sharing that, and uh, welcome, Phil. Thank you, uh, Phil. I've got to ask you this: What inspired you to set up Cervelo, and and what does Cervelo mean? Well, actually, Cervelo means uh, uh, it's a portmanteau of uh, cervello, which in Italian means brain, because we wanted to reflect that. You know, we thought the business, uh, a cycling business, was really dominated by tradition and craftsmanship, and we thought that we should be taking a more engineering or a brain-oriented approach to it, and um, and velo, of course, which is just bike in French. So um, that was how we came up with the, with a name, and it was really just a, you know, the, the work had been out there for years on, you know, what makes riders faster, and it, and it really is a lot of its aerodynamics. That's the dominant thing. Anyone that's been out on a bike, you know, can feel that. But no one was really doing a lot about that on, on bikes. So, and Jordan and I thought, hey, there's a real opportunity here. There's a business opportunity. And uh, there's an engineering challenge, first of all, and then a business opportunity. And that's kind of the order that it, that it came to us in. So that's what got us started. Is, and we were in a composite materials lab, which was, it's the perfect place to, to work on aerodynamics because you've got the complete freedom of form. You aren't stuck with the, the old materials and the old shapes. We could do anything we wanted effectively but it's also difficult to do. <laughs> well, I thought what was really you know, fascinating in the, in the book was it was really thinking that you know, a lot of bikes are created by marketing departments and uh, there was you actually uh, taking the, the opportunity to really, really test test bikes and uh, and components. And, and so your business is very kind of engineering-led, really, wasn't it? Whereas a lot of the marketplace were just trying to satisfy what uh, they felt the market wanted. Yeah, it was like in. I think you know, in the early days, we spent more time in the wind tunnel. We we'd spent well, basically, when we started the business, we took all our money and uh, and we pooled it and we spent spent it all in the wind tunnel before we actually had a bike, <laughs> which is maybe not the smartest way to start. But we spent a lot of time understanding how we could uh, make riders faster, what really mattered, um, and working out all those things on it before we started the company. So before we started selling anything, so. Yeah, it was it was a real focus on on understanding it from an engineering standpoint, and that we didn't realize how different we were uh, from everyone else. And you're right; most companies are start from a marketing standpoint, or products are designed from that standpoint. We just said we looked at there, we knew what was the right thing to do, we made that product, and then aesthetically, we just tweaked it to make it a little bit better, to make it a little bit more uh, maybe a little more acceptable to the customer. But that led to a really easy, we didn't have any big discussions about um, the aesthetics or anything because it was very much driven by the engineering. So it was an engineering first approach and the aesthetics were just tweaks that were uh, secondary after that. So it's kind of the same idea you see in Formula One where the performance is first and then after that's defined, then there's still areas where you've got freedom to tweak the design from an aesthetic standpoint and, and that's what we always did. And what, and what were the... 
what were the intentions and the, the, the challenges you faced you know, in the beginning of this journey when you were sort of setting that company up? Well, I think, you know, all the way through, uh, we were always challenged for, from financing standpoint. Um, we started back in the dot-com era of the, you know, the late 90s. And, um, you know, we, we had a, a profitable company. Well, it was, we weren't paying ourselves anything, but, you know, we were uh, started in the, in the basement and we were profitable in the, basically in the second year. And, you know, that was nothing, you know, people didn't want a physic from a, an investment standpoint in the, in the dot-com era, we had a physical product that made money. And that was the exact opposite of what you wanted to get financing in that era. You had to kind of have some weird business model that wasn't really making any money and you weren't really sure if it was ever going to make money. And uh, so like no one was interested in this boring thing about bikes and, you know, like Canada wasn't exactly, uh, you know, at the forefront of people's thinking uh, when it came to bikes. It was, you know, it was a really European sport and it was, you know, Italian, uh, French and, and English based. So, yeah, we didn't make it on anyone's radar when it came to uh, financing. So that made it kind of tough to start with. And then it was really, you know, distribution. As you get going, distribution was a, was a challenge. I mean, you start trying, you know, number of times we had, Jordan and I would sit at a little wee desk and we had one phone and, you know, okay, it's your turn now. And it was my turn to, to call, call a, cold call a shop, you know, and then, and then they, inevitably the answer was no. Then, okay, Jared, he'd slide the phone across to his side, and it's like, your turn to call now. And, uh, yeah, you, you get used to, uh, you get thick-skinned after a while. You get used to people saying no to you. But eventually people say, hey, I'll give that a shot. And uh, But it's a lot of work, and you get thick-skinned. I like that system, though, of, uh, of two of you making cold calls and taking in turn, one holding the other to account, because I think uh, it is difficult doing that. I might have a, might have a day of that with my, my business partner. <laughs> <laughs> rather than trying to do it in isolation um now you absolutely you know established you know leadership in the cycling market we've got about three minutes till commercial break and i wonder what the you know what the critical elements and for actually doing this you know what, what how do you how did you do that i mean obviously you used the wind tunnel but what was what was so radical about what you did well, I think what we did that, that was different is we were doing something that was unique. No one was really bothering with aerodynamics um, or with really engineering a better uh, a better bike. It was really a craft-based industry. We were doing something different, and we were doing something that was meaningful to consumers. Um, they were weird. There were some people that were more traditional-based, and they just thought our bikes were ugly and weren't going to go near them. But you know, just at that time, triathlon was catching on. And triathletes wanted anything to go faster. They would ride the weirdest stuff, and they were super open to that sort of innovation. And so they were the ones that gave us our real breakthrough and were willing to take the chance on this weird new bike coming from this small Canadian company. I mean, do you think, um, you know, I'm just just wondering at the moment, it just feels like there's an absolute explosion of people cycling, and, and triathlon is going through a, a real, um, I think, acceleration forward there's so many more people seem to be doing it and over here in the uk anyway the golf clubs are all struggling people are people are off cycling rather than playing golf um were you were you a little bit possibly a, a few years before your time do you think well i think we were actually just at the right time and that there's you know there's some a lot of evidence of how people uh you know wh when is the right what are the right elements to starting a business and certainly one of it is having a, a great team um but someone did some research, and I can't remember his name. It was one of the VCs, and he said, "You know, the big thing we always looked for was the right timing. Is the market ready for it?" And we, I, yeah, we had a better product. 
I absolutely believe that. But we also got into the market just as it was, uh, it was, it was turning. So we were, we were right there at the right time for sure. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's sort of fascinating is the, you know, the, the you know, supplies of your your bikes. Uh, you know, look got components from different markets in the Far East, and um, I used to had a company where we would source product from the Far East, and that that brings in complexity, doesn't it? When you have to bring everything together and then build something, um, we, must, did that add a lot of extra complexity into the company? It did, but it also, I mean, the the, the internet era and the rise of all that sort of uh, capability, it, it, things exploded in the late '90s. You know, we just well, with the euro, uh, we could buy things easily. Uh, you could contact anyone on a, from a global supply chain. You could sell globally with the net and with email. Um, so it was a it was a challenge for sure because we were buying things from you know I don't know what. We, well, the the bike is from nowhere. I mean, when it comes to duties, it's not from anywhere because the parts come from literally thirteen or fourteen different co- countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a challenge, but it also opened up the internet. Opened up a huge opportunity for us to do that, which didn't exist five or ten years ago. So again, it was timing. It wasn't just the time in the market; it was the time of technology and what was happening out there in general. Excellent. Well, we're going to go to commercial break now. Um, after the break, we're going to find out a bit more about um, some of the some of the challenges, but also um, how uh, Cervelo adapted when suddenly, well, after a period of time of success, guy. Sales started to skyrocket through the roof um, as some of the lessons that uh, occurred during this uh, in- incredible uh, transformation as this organization and these amazing um, brands started to really, really take off. So we're we'll back with you again in, in just a couple of minutes. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program. One-to-one mentoring and coaching facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. 
Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Phil White, uh, the co-founder of Cervelo Cycles, and also Anna DePico, who's written this wonderful book, To Make Riders Faster, which is all about the Cervelo story. Um, I guess one of the things um, I think is is interesting in reading the book is, you know, this sort of very smart way that you you obviously uh, you know, testing these, these bikes and you were you were building bikes that were going faster and faster but you know what you did do is you you kind of got bikes into the right hands so people noticed you know tell us a little bit about how you did that and maybe who helped you to really um inspire people to appreciate uh, your cycles and appreciate that they went quicker yeah it was definitely uh very helpful i mean we had to have people that shared our vision and uh you sell to people that believe what you believe and um, one of the early converts uh, was a friend of uh, ours from university who had kind of lost, lost touch with for a couple of years, and we stumbled across him at a triathlon. And he was a top uh, elite triathlete, Ian Fraser. And he said, oh, this is brilliant. I love this. And uh, we, we kind of had, had a great friendship before, and it just accelerated from there. So we'd go to events, and Ian would race, and we would promote the bikes, and he was just always out there helping promote the bikes and it was making him faster and, and he believed in it. So that was early day. It was a huge help, help having someone like that that totally believed in the product and was basically an, an apostle for us. Um, and, and then, you know, as we went through, we had we were lucky to have other people that had the same thing. We had Bjarne Reese, who had uh, Team CSC, um, was the first guy in cycling that really kind of uh, took a real interest in us. And it fit his model. He wanted to start a, a bike team and having the best equipment. And um, we started out with him on the time trial bikes. And we just got chatting. And he said, well, why, why don't we just do everything? Why don't you guys do everything? And we were just this tiny little Canadian company. And, you know, he had here a Tour de France winner. You know, he's got a huge, you know, a, a team that's, you know, one of the top players in the Tour de France. And it was fantastic to have someone like that that made a huge statement about, I believe in these guys that you've never heard of, and I'm going to get my, my team on them. And, uh, and that happened. It was a big, big thing all the way through. I mean, Chrissy Wellington and Team TUB, those guys believed in it, and, uh, and they became great evangelists for us. So, yeah, we were lucky that we would, could have great relations with the people, and they, and they were always enjoyable. It wasn't just a sponsorship. All the sponsorships we had were people we liked dealing with, and that was really when we first started. We had this huge stack of of uh, applications for sponsorship, and I remember Jordan going, "How the heck are we going to fit sift through these and find people?" And we figured eventually that the easiest way was just going to kind of chat with people and people that we really liked and got along well with and uh, enjoyed being with. That was a big part of our our philosophy on finding the right the right athletes. So yeah, you had to you know you had to have some winnings, but I think it was also you look at now you'd look at social media following and how people are engaging with uh, their fans. Back in that days, it was kind of pre-social media, um, but we did the same thing. We did it just by you know by walking up to people at events. I mean, you didn't have a Twitter didn't exist, but there was still social. Uh, so it was like those are the people we wanted. We wanted those people that were fun to deal with and had a great. Uh, great interaction with our potential customers. I love the way the story in the book of how you approached uh, one athlete in Italy, uh, and you didn't didn't have their address. I that was oh cool. yeah, <laughs> that was fun. Yeah, Gerard, because uh, this was early on, and Jared um, had the original concept of you know a faster time trial bike, 
and he was a huge fan of Gianni Bugno, who was a double world champion, 91-92, and he was Italian, but, you know, you know, famous cyclist in Italy, can't be that hard to find him, but Gerard had no idea where what his address was, so he just wrote on an envelope, you know, snail mail, and he goes, Gianni Bugno, Italy, sticks a <laughs> stamp on it and sticks it in the mail. <laughs> And it got to him, and he was super supportive. I mean, those those guys were one of our first big supporters. That's what got us going. Was they sent us a bunch of equipment, and 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 also just the give us, you know, they gave us the confidence that yeah, if these guys that are the best in the world are interested in, in us helping them, well, maybe we're not. Maybe we're more than just a couple of wankers at uh, university. <laughs> I think it was very interesting through these these people, you know, using the bikes was just actually how much quicker they went than other make some models i mean did, did that surprise you at all or was it what you what you were expecting yeah i mean i mean yeah it didn't expect it didn't uh, kind of surprise us because we knew what the numbers should be um we knew how much faster it was but you know it, it is amazing when you get on a on a, a fast bike and you go well, i can actually feel the difference and um so that that was one thing and that was one thing we focused on was okay if we're gonna get new customers on it, they've got to experience this themselves. They've got to, if we could get people on bikes, um, they will buy the bike. That was, that was our philosophy. So how do we make that first ride experience a great experience from them? And, uh, we felt that the combination of, you know, education, understanding that the, the technology and the thought process that went into it and then riding it, they would be, uh, early converts. And that was the case is like, if we could Educate someone and and get them to go into a dealer. They generally sold the bike. Excellent. I I love the you know I love the sort of passion and energy and the way that you went about doing things. But it seems that um, there's one thing that can derail you in any business, and that's cash flow. And um, I just wondered how you 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 dealt with that as you you know, try to move forward at pace, um, and ensuring that that cash flow sort of kept up with with what you wanted to do when you wanted to do it. Yeah, well, I guess the answer, how did we deal with cash flow? I guess the answer is poorly. Um, you know, just, <laughs> it was always, from the start, it was always a problem. Um, you know, I talked about before when when we started up, like no one would give us a nickel. But, you know, in a certain way, that that kind of forced us to be very, very careful in, in how we did things. And, you know, folks forces you to focus. So we just couldn't take our eye off the ball. We couldn't you know, waste money, everything was kind of really well thought out. And that continued all the way through. Um, you know, I think now some of the, sometimes people ask you also, sometimes have too much money uh, when they start up with, with VC financing and the, the push is to spend it. And we didn't ever have that option. So it forced us to be more thoughtful and, and to a certain extent, a little bit more conservative on, on developing new things. Mm. So, uh, but yeah, it was, it was a thing that eventually, uh, became an albatross around her neck as well. Um, if you read the last the last story of the or the last chapter of the book, you'll understand that it was driven by um, by the lack of cash. And after Pawn acquired us, it was uh, it was great to see them because you know I I tell a story that they called us up and they said you haven't paid your uh, vendors. Ah, sure we have. We've paid the vendors. Go, no 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 they're they're overdue. And I go oh, yeah, but they don't really need the money. It's like they, we never pay them on time, and uh, they go, "We should pay them." I go, "Well, we have no, come on, we have no money, so we're not paying them." And they go, "Okay, well, here's a few million. Pay them off." It's like, "Okay," 
And uh, that happened a couple times. And then I walked into the office one day, one day and I went, hey, I don't know what I'm going to do today. I don't have anyone to beat up to pay me for cash so I can pay the bills. And it's like, I might have time to actually focus on building the company. And it was, <laughs> it was just like, oh, my God, I've never had this before where I'm not worried about cash every day. And it was like, it was a light bulb moment. It was like, yeah, we really did need to bring equity in way earlier. Mm, that must have been quite nice. It must be quite nice for you as well, Anna. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th I think the cash flow worries impacted uh, Phil and Gerard more. Um, but uh, certainly when, uh, when Pawn was the owner of Cervello, it brought uh, a, a, certain, a certain relief and then a renewed focus on, uh, you know, building the, the proper systems and processes for, for the company. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of in, in, you know, interested in how you adapted when, you know, you, you took this, um, actually got a risk with, uh, that you explained with the Danish team. And, um, and and you made that a real success. And then people started to really, you know, win around the world events on your bikes and everything really, really started to take off. And I just wondered how you you ad managed to adapt, you know, production from the levels um, that they were at to really ramping it up when sales started to really, really skyrocket. Well, it was difficult for sure and uh, required us to, to be a little more, uh, well, to get more people um and get good people which you know was the key to our success was our our people were really good and they worked really hard um and then we just you know our suppliers also had to to ramp up and we needed more of their uh more of their time and more of their production capacity um i spent more and more time in asia doing that uh feet on the ground and we did find that you know when you were in the factory uh you got the attention so as soon as you left, someone else would show up and they'd get attention. So the key was, in many cases, just being there. Um, and uh, and that, that definitely helped it. But, you know, that was one thing we, you know, in many cases, we didn't get the product on time or we were late. Um, our customers were, they saw the value in the brand and I'll give them 10 points for putting up with our, uh, you know, at many times pretty poor delivery. Um, at one point, we actually had to, to really put a focus on it, we were at the risk of losing dealers and and some of our guys came forward and they said, we really just need to focus on this. And we actually put a, a financial penalty in for us if we delivered late. And I think that gave the, the dealers a lot more confidence that they could count on us. And we really did then completely focus that, that next couple of years then on delivering on time. And, uh, but it was, it was, took a real focus. Um, and it wasn't our forte either but it you know having a financial penalty on the table forced you to take notice of it i really like that um i wrote a wrote a book called the power to get things done whether you feel like it's a not and that's very much about creating situations uh, that and they ensure that you act whether you feel like it's a not and i think that's a really good example if i rewrite it i might come and talk to you if i can include that example in the, yes, in sure. the next edition because um you know like a financial penalty that clearly was uh, something that gave the vendors real security but also it made, meant that you've got to step up. So it worked um, worked for both of you, didn't it? Mm -hmm. Yep. So what did you learn? You, you, the business also grew from, you know, a, a few of you to, I know at one stage of the book, it talks about there being 100 people. And I guess that maybe grew to grew to more. I mean, what 
what did you learn about leading people as the business got bigger and bigger? Um, you know, it's hard to, one thing I learned, you know, may have been kind of more reflective looking back was it's hard to see what's happening in the middle, when you're in the middle of it, like, you know, as the CEO or the, the leader, you're a little bit insulated, uh, from what's really happening. Um, sometimes people don't want you to see things, but it, they really, it's just hard to be on top of everything. And so it becomes really important that you set in, in, you know, hire the right people, and have the right culture because you're relying on them to really carry forward your vision. So I think that was one thing we did did pretty well. We hired some pretty good people, and the culture that um, Gerard and I really had had pushed and developed, we didn't realize how strong that was until after we'd left. And um, you know, carrying forward because uh, the new new CEOs had come in, and you know, to understand the company. Um, it was really relying on those people that were already there kind of carrying forward with the way that they'd done things before. And it wasn't till I, till I stepped back and looked at it and saw other companies as I was kind of going around to other companies and doing some, you know, internal consulting work. It's like, Oh, I didn't realize how strong our culture was and how much it really was focused on innovation and moving forward all the time. And that was, you know, we just, we gave people the the confidence to move forward and there was never a real thing of like, there was never a penalty for failure. It was, we didn't made it clear that we're going to try this and we're going to, you know, do a lot of research up front to make sure we've made the right decision and then just keep hammering at it until we got it right. And, you know, I think, you know, we made, we made mistakes and people saw that in the company, but they saw that no one was going to get punished over it. It was like, okay, we're going to learn from it and move forward. And the confidence that, that that gave people that, you know, there was no downside, I didn't realize until after I'd left just how strong and how important it was and how strong it was. Mm. Now, I need to, I need to sort of thank, um, we, we, we came together to do this interview through a, a mutual connection, Jane Hansom, who's got a great company called Sponge Marketing. Uh, and Jane's a, a triathlete and I know she, um, and uh, Ironman, and I know she um, has ridden your bikes and uh, she's, um, she won a world was a world champion in 2016 uh, and uh, when i when i spoke to jane she said um, you're going to enjoy interviewing phil he's a, he's a great guy and he's a real a real sort of celebrity in the, the cycling marketplace and uh, i just sort of wonder you know you were you were making and innovating uh, your bikes initially in cellars in the garage and, and which i could imagine being quite a an insular thing you then came out into the world and started you know, to build these bikes and engage people to actually ride them. But there was a point in time where, you know, you've become a, a real personality on the sort of cycling world stage. And I just wondered, you know, how do you deal with that success when it started coming your way? <laughs> 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 well, I think, you know, um, you know, people look at it from the outside and they think, oh, this is like just, you know, a golden thing. Or it's a golden boy, like everything has gone right. And it's like, well, yeah, it, it didn't all go right. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that went wrong and it's like, you know, it's like you're a little Dutch boy in the dike and you're trying to plug the hole, but you know, there's 50 holes and you only have 10 fingers. And it's like, you know, you're, it, it's, I don't know what the, the best metaphor is maybe juggling. And it's like, cause Gerard actually used to juggle and, but we just had way too many balls in the air. Like it was crazy. <laughs> and, uh, I think you get a little bit that, of that in the book of just, we were doing too much too fast um, sometimes and, and it, it was kind of crazy. So I think we kept pretty humble just because we knew it wasn't as good as everyone thought it was. Um, and you know, like we, we'd made mistakes too. And, 
And so I think, yeah, I think the one thing is definitely to stay humble. Uh, from a standpoint of dealing with media and that, it was like, you know, I, I was a little bit more comfortable with that than Jared was. But we both did it and we both, you know, I think we both kind of kind of enjoyed it. Um, but, you know, like we also could fill each other's shoes. That was one thing that uh, I think advantage that Gerard and I had is that we both had a capability on the tech side and on the business side. And we were happy to backfill for each other if one person was swamped in one area. So, yeah, I think it was stay humble, stay real. And, uh, you know, people, people like chatting with you. So just enjoy it. It's a good chat. I think I speak to you know, a few people who've achieved great success and uh, don't suffer from time to time with the imposter syndrome. Uh, and uh, I mean, I think what uh, I'm, I'm sort of sensing here, you know, it may be that, um, you know, you have challenges and you're putting your fingers in, into lots of holes in the, in the dike. But actually what you did is you, you, um, you know, helped an industry shift and transform and disrupted it, which enabled bikes to go faster, which I think is a, a considerable achievement. But with all of those things going on, maybe you just sometimes could easily lose sight of what you were achieving. So we're going to go to commercial break now. Um, I'm not going to give you time to respond to that. Um, and we'll be come back after the break and we'll talk a bit about um, the Sabello um, test team, I think, which is very interesting as well. And and then and we'll talk a little bit about um, uh, how you dealt with things when that when things started to go a little bit awry. So we're back with you again in just a couple of minutes. So do join us in just uh, just a minute or two. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program. One-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Anna DePico and with Phil White, and we're talking about this amazing uh, Sabillo story. And um, you know, Phil, you you created um, a, a something called the Sabillo Test Team. Do you want to explain what that is and what it achieved? Yeah, sure. I mean, we were going along and with the uh, team uh, CSE and which became Saxo Bank under Bjarne's uh, leadership, 
And as the company got bigger, we just felt that we needed to get more value out of the team. And, uh, you know, customers wanted to interact more with the team. They wanted to be part of it more. They wanted to, to meet the athletes. They, they wanted to have a chance to, to chat with them, to ride with them. And, um, you know, there was, and just, you know, have a more of a social interaction with them. And that was a challenge because the teams always looked at it as their job was to win, win races. And we looked at it as uh, the job of the team was to sell bikes and uh, interact with our customers. And, um, and so, you know, we, from, my, from our standpoint, it was much more valuable to have uh, the team go riding with some of our dealers or maybe some of our other uh, consumers than it was to, to win another race in, you know, some far-flung place that no one had ever heard of. Um, you know, the, the race wins were important. Uh, especially the big ones, but the small ones weren't really as important. And we said, how do we get this? Um, and we found the teams just didn't understand that. They really felt that they wanted to be, their job was to win races and they wanted to be left alone to do that. And so we wanted to have more interaction with them and with our customers and we needed to use them more for product development. Like we were finding that we just didn't get enough time uh, out of them to help develop new products. So we said, okay, well, how do we achieve this? And and really, we said, you know, George was a big fan of it. He said, yeah, I think we should start our own team. And we gnashed our teeth on it a lot going through it. Um, we were also, at the same time, we were also uh, worried about the ethics and the doping that was uh, coming into cycling. And we thought that the industry had a responsibility to take a leadership role in that, uh, in encountering it. And so we looked at it and we said, how can we do this? And it really all came back to, to, the, to the test team, having our own team. Um, we could decide then what riders we had, that they had the ethics that matched what we wanted, that they were willing to do things and interact with, with uh, our customers, and that we could get them, use them effectively for product development. And that was a great success from that standpoint. I mean, we uh, – rose from being, you know, nothing at all to being the number one team of the, in the world in, in six months. And, you know, we, we did manage to really change the culture of, of the team. And it was, there was no doping and people, uh, started to realize that their value was, uh, you know, in, in more than just winning races, they were, people wanted to chat with them. And some of the guys were, were more for, more for it than others, but some of them really, uh, did a great job of it and really engaged with it. And do you think that helped to, it changed the industry a bit in terms of uh, other teams who may have been doping and realizing actually there's a team there that isn't doping and uh, you know the the product technology is what's winning not the not the doping yeah i think i think we did um you know people look at it and go well i mean we clearly didn't have the strongest team uh in the peloton we had some really good riders like uh, carlos sastra who'd won the tour the year before and thor hajov but you know, people looked at the rest of the team and went, you know, these guys, you know, on paper are not the strongest team, but they would come out and win. And so it was the equipment, and it was also, I started to understand the psychology of it. And we were really trying to change, you know, work it more as a team. In cycling, people tend to kind of come together for races, but train very much independently. And we were trying to move it forward so that it was more of a team, and the team relied on itself and could draw on the inner strength of the team. And that started to work and people really started on the team really started to see that and it really gelled. And, you know, the, the team, I'd love to say that we were just the best guys and the, the best equipment. Maybe we were, but we were also, I think it was a lot of the, the, uh, 
a lot of understanding the psychology of it and working together as, together as a team that made it really strong. Fantastic. So what happened then when things started to go wrong? And how did well, you I think that, pressures? yeah, it was, uh, it was a rough time. I mean, we started that team um, in the worst economic downturn the world's seen in, in 70 years. And we could see there were some indications it was coming, but we had no idea that the world was about to completely melt down. I mean, there were, you know, back in that era of 2008-9, people were unsure if anything would survive. They were like, was the world financial system going to exist? Uh, and so companies, we knew we, we were taking a risk on it in the first year by carrying it. Um, but And we knew we couldn't do that for very long. Um, but we thought we were confident in our ability to get... Um, to get to bring on sponsors. We've had really good luck with industry sponsors. Um, people that we've been working with are anteing up much larger figures than they had before because they saw what we were doing and they were getting much more value at it, out of it. And so we were pretty confident we'd be able to extend that into finding a title sponsor. And we just didn't understand that, um, you know, the world was melting down to the extent it was. And companies weren't just, you know, backing off. They were just taking their their checkbook, sticking it in the safe and just spinning it, spinning the dial and staying closed. Like they're not, they weren't doing anything. Um, and that was a shock to find out just how hard it was to um, have such a great product with the riders that were, you know, willing to and coming out to meet people at events and uh, and not being able to raise the cash on it. And that was that was the really that was the tough part. There was no doubt about it. And then you, you got to a point where you uh, decided the best thing to do was to, was to sell the business. Um, well, we well, then we went. And we 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 had to get we had to get out of the uh, out of the test team thing. So we did it for two years. And then we combined it with uh, Garmin, and Garmin uh, was run by Slipstream Sports, who who had much of the similar uh, philosophies on sport and clean sport that we did, and we thought it was going to be a, a great uh, you know a great partnership. Um, there was still a bit of a clash of cultures there, um, and it didn't work out as quite as well as we'd anticipated. But um, it was still pretty good. But then, you know, we were still down massively on cash, and that was really what uh, caused us to kind of go, okay, so we need to retrench and uh, and 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 kind of restructure to reduce our our cash requirements. And that was that was start, you know, too late, obviously, to to look for to for, to look for equity. Um, and bring in equity. We should have started before, well before that, and we had a lot going for us. We were just always seemed to be just too busy to be able to pull that together. Mm. And, and how how did you feel about all this, Anna, as this was starting to to happen? Oh, it was uh, it was pretty difficult. Um, uh, I guess. Uh, you know, as 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 Phil was saying, now now that we can look back, we can say, yeah, we should have uh, looked for equity uh, a lot sooner. Um, but you know what, you 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 do what what you know how to do at the time, um, and uh, you know, very grateful and uh, um, and blessed that uh, Pawn was uh, was able to purchase the company and uh, and give it. <laughs> sustainability mm. and how did you find that then phil because you went to work for pond for i think jared went on to do his own thing and what was that like then that transition moving into 
being part of a, a larger uh, organization um, and perhaps a little bit less entrepreneurial in in nature. Yeah, it was it was a really educational experience because I had you know before we started Cervelo and before I went back to McGill, I had worked in in aerospace um, for quite a few years, and so I'd seen you know business the way it it should be. I think that was actually valuable when we started our company. It's like you are more aware then of the risks you're taking by not doing things or by doing things um, a little bit sloppily or or not doing something. But it had been, you know, quite a few years since I'd worked in a in a big company, and and it was interesting going back to see the culture and and different companies and how they work, and and understanding that, um, you know, the the role of the employee versus the role of the founder, and uh, so it was interesting to see that. And then they were they were quite, you know, they said, yeah, we need to help on the innovation. How do we how do we do that? And it was a great opportunity to look at what we'd done well and what we hadn't done and how do you make that into a you know a system that you can uh, take to other companies and help uh, help them do the same thing or a similar thing that we were doing so that was a from my standpoint that was a great opportunity um, but you know you're still looking at your company and going well, why are they doing that and you know so sometimes where they doing things you know different than we were doing and, and you go through a cycle and because it's your it's your child it's your baby and you know uh, kind of set a, set apart from it a little bit, and it is a bit frustrating to look at some things that I would have done differently, um, good or or good or bad. I mean, sometimes they did did things that were probably smarter than than we would have done. So it, but it's just it's your child leaving, and and you've just got to set them free and and hope that you've given them a strong enough uh, grounding and a basis, and effectively a culture that they'll make the right decisions. And you know, sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't, but. Overall, the company is still there. It's you know it's still going, and I think with the launch of the the new S5, you see that they're making spectacularly good bikes. Um, they just need to do more of that. So you must feel. Uh, uh, I mean, how how do you feel now when you see uh, you know a bike go past, um, or you drive past one of your your Cervelo bikes? Do you uh, do you feel a huge sense of pride every time you see one, or do you feel a bit mixed because it's now under different ownership, or how do you feel? Yeah, like, I mean, it's something that people ask all the time. It's like, you know, when I see a bike ride by, I guess I get a little bit of a glow and think, oh, that's cool. Um, but it was, you know, it never, it, on each one that came by, it never was a huge glow of, of pride. Maybe it was because you're always, I was always counting them going, okay, what did, what would we get on market share here? And you're always, you're always at events going, okay, Specialized has got 22, we've got, 21 it's like how do we beat those guys <laughs> um so it was always a, it was always a metric as opposed to a, a sense of pride there's always a sense of pride it's like you you look at them and you go i remember that bike that was that was that one that i had all that trouble developing or that took us a long time or was hard to launch that one and so it brings back some pretty good stories but yeah it, it to me i think it was it was it's more of a metric and like you know i see the number of Cervellos and I'm going, okay, so what else is out here? Who is, who's taking the market share from them or who are they taking market share from? So, um, it's kind of weird. <laughs> and if, if anybody's listening right now, I've only got about a minute before I need to finish actually, but, um, you know, w- w- with you going forward now, if people want to sort of connect, connect with you, what sort of things, conversations do you want to have right now with people? I'm really love this whole innovation thing and being, helping people innovate. So I'm doing more and more of that. 
um, on a consulting basis and, and lectures. And I'm also working with a, a variety of companies because I really, when we were at Pond, most of our bikes were city bikes and what the coal was moving people in an, you know, in an urban environment. Um, you know, not so much the absolute level of peak of performance like we were doing at Cervelo. But I still love the performance, but I like the problem of moving people in, uh, in mobility and, and electric bikes are, you know, a phenomenal solution to that. You can move people faster and farther um, with less effort. And um, we just got to make those a better part of the whole mobility continuum, get people out of cars. So, and the way to do that is make a better experience for them on a bike. Fantastic. Well, I've got to end it there. I've I've so enjoyed this conversation. Um, it's it's a fascinating one. You should feel so proud for what you've achieved. You've definitely made made um, riders go faster and uh, left a, an incredible mark on the the cycle industry. So thank you so much for being guests today. Thank, thank you very so. much. Uh, and and if you, I would recommend to anybody. I love this book. Um, it's a perfect book to be buying people for, for Christmas coming up now, or when, whenever you've got somebody who likes cycling and it's their their birthday or whatever. I would um, I'd buy this book. It looks great. It's uh, it's a fascinating read. It's got lovely pictures as well. All the designs of uh, different bikes as they develop through the ages. If you want to order the book, uh, it's um, uh, to make riders faster. Go to um, to make riders fast and I'm sure um, you will soon have a book that you'll be proud of and uh, will make a great gift for somebody. Um, I really enjoyed that uh, conversation today. And um, I hope if you've got any questions or comments or you want me to put you in touch with uh, Phil for you've got some opportunities or something like that, just get in touch at chris at chriscooper.co.uk or I'm sure you'll find some contact details as well from to make ridersfaster.com. Uh, once again, um, great to speak to you on next week's show. Um, I've got um, Alistair, sorry, Anthony Steers. Anthony is uh, an incredible expert on on um, selling over, selling things via um, the telephone. Um, he's a really lovely guy as well and uh, has got all sorts of methodology and ways to do things very authentically, um, but to really have that communication. As Phil was saying, he struggled and Gerard in their earlier days, many people do. So do join us again next week. Um, a huge thank you again to Sponge Marketing, to Jane Hansom, and I wish you all well. We thank you for listening to the Business Elevation Show. Please join your host, Chris Cooper, again next Friday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more.